morning church today's scripture reading comes from mark chapter 9 verses 33-37 and then we'll jump to chapter 10 verses 13-16 this is God's word and they came to Capernaum and when he was in the house he asked them what were you discussing on the way and they kept silent for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve. And he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Verse 13, and they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, let the children come to me, and do not hinder them. Verse two such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. Thank you, Ryan. It's part of human nature to aspire for greatness. When we are children and we think about what we want to be when we grow up, we often hear answers like, I want to be an astronaut. I want to be a professional basketball player. I want to be a millionaire. Now, there's nothing wrong with the desire for greatness. The Bible doesn't disparage the pursuit of greatness. It's how we define greatness that gets us into trouble. Author and New York Times columnist David Brooks describes our culture as the mighty achievatron. Greatness in our society is defined by achievement, success, and accolades. This is especially true here in the city of Irvine. Our school district is one of the most competitive school systems in the nation. The street names of Irvine reflect our definition of greatness. This school, Beacon Park, the cross street, is on benchmark. My kids' high school, Portola High, is on the street Merritt. Right down the road, a couple miles from here, you have street names like Encore, Virtuoso, Medallion, Masterpiece. These names reflect what we aspire to become. They reflect our dreams for our children. We hope that one day they might become a Virtuoso and receive an Encore. This desire to be great and recognized bubbled up inside me during the pandemic, I noticed a group of uh, people gathering for a pickup soccer game right next to my house a couple blocks away every Thursday afternoon. And so I went over uh, to play with them. 
And so in the beginning, they have everyone introduce their names. And then they say, everyone, line up. Two captains emerge. And they begin to, one by one, pick their teams. And so we're all looking around. And all of a sudden, I started feeling anxious and fearful. I didn't really care if I was the first to be picked, but I definitely didn't want to be the last to be picked. And I think that's true of all of us, whether we're getting picked for a, 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 a soccer team or whether or not we're competing against our coworkers at work or whether or not we're counting how many subscribers we have on our social media feed. We want to be first, not last. We want to be great, not least. And this desire for greatness can be found here amongst the disciples. In chapter 9, they argue amongst themselves, who is the greatest disciple? Jesus overhears them, and he inverts their understanding of greatness on its head. He inverts the hierarchy of greatness and tells them in verse 35, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Then he takes a child, directs everyone's attention to the child, and says, this child here symbolizes what greatness looks like. And then in chapter 10, the same issue comes up, the issue of greatness, the issue of importance. Some children are brought to Jesus by their parents in hopes that these children might be blessed by Jesus. Now, how old are these children? I believe that many of these children were likely infants, The reason is because in Luke's account of this incident, he tells us that infants were brought to Jesus. Also, in verse 16, we read that Jesus took them in his arms. My kids the other day made fun of me because I baptized one of our babies as if he was an infant. I guess he wasn't an infant, he was pretty big, and yet I took him in the crux of my arm like an infant and baptized, and they were like, Dad, you looked so awkward. Well, Jesus takes them in, their, in his arms, signifying that most likely these were little babies. But as the parents are making their way, the disciples step in front of them, block them, and actually rebuke them. You can imagine what they said to these parents. Do you know how busy Jesus is? Do you see how many people are here to meet Jesus? Who do you think you are bringing your children to him? They are not worthy of his personal attention. They are not great in his eyes. At this, Jesus becomes indignant. He is furious. The only other time we read Jesus being indignant is when he's in the temple clearing it. So he is outraged here. Why? He tells us. Disciples, don't you realize children belong to the kingdom of God? Children belong to the kingdom of God. And once again, he takes the child physically and proceeds to place his hands on them, blessing them. Now, I hope you realize just how countercultural Jesus' actions were here in these two chapters. 
Today, when we see little children, we, we think of sweetness, we think of innocence. We say, oh, look how precious is that baby. But back then, babies were a nuisance. They were a burden. They were a drag. There was no such thing as gender reveal parties back then. There was no such thing as Chuck E. Cheese. They didn't celebrate kids. Back then, your value was determined by how much you contributed to the common good. We all know that children don't contribute much to society. If anything, they are a drain. Couple that with the high birth rate as well as a high infant mortality rate, children were seen as expendable. And yet Jesus takes this child and he turns everything upside down. His definition of greatness is different from the world. He points to these precious children and say, they belong to the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God belongs to children such as these. As an aside, those of you who have been with us for a while know that at our church, we baptize children, we baptize infants. And I understand that for many of you, this is a novel practice. You may not have grown up in a tradition, in a church that baptizes babies. That's okay. We love you. We accept you. We embrace you. We want you to be a part of our church family because we believe that what unites us in the gospel is more important than our differences here about baptism. Having said that, I do have a question for you to ponder and consider. If Jesus goes out of his way here to show the disciples, to show us that the kingdom of God belongs to children such as these, then should not baptism, which is a symbol of our entrance into the kingdom of God, also be given to children? If Jesus says, Children belong in the kingdom, and baptism represents our entrance into that kingdom, then should not children be baptized? Moving on. Jesus does more than simply tell us that children belong to the kingdom of God. In verse 15, he says something even more radical. He says, truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Now, it's one thing to say that children are a part of the kingdom of God. It's another to say that children are the standard of the kingdom of God. It's one thing to say that children are acceptable. It's another to say that everyone must be like a child to enter and that's what Jesus does here. And so it begs the question, what does Jesus mean that we have to be like a child? What is this characteristic that's so important that it's a non-negotiable in order to enter heaven? Thankfully, the context gives us some clue. When you pan out a bit, and look at chapter 10 as a whole, what emerges are examples of childlike faith and examples of adult-like faith. 
So for example, immediately following this passage, Jesus encounters the rich young ruler. And in that encounter, we see that the rich young ruler does not possess childlike faith, but adult approach to the kingdom, and he is rejected. And then after that, we we read about a squabble between James and John who are arguing, again, about who can sit to the right and left of Jesus. Their pride comes to the service as they leverage how good they are, how much more worthy they are than the other adult-like faith. And then in the last encounter, Jesus meets blind Bartimaeus. And with blind Bartimaeus, Jesus is captivated by his one plea, Son of God, have mercy on me. No pride, no self-righteousness, just a call for mercy, an example of childlike faith. And so when you consider the contextual clues, there are three things about being a child that I believe Jesus is urging us to possess. Three characteristics. First is this, to enter the kingdom of God, we must possess childlike dependency. Childlike dependency. I picture an infant on a table with arms and legs flailing into the sky, crying out for mommy or daddy to hold him. Is not a baby a picture of utter helplessness? That is a Christian life. Babies can't feed themselves. They can't clean themselves. They can't even burp themselves. They are completely, utterly dependent for survival. When they are hungry, they cry. When they need comfort, they cry. When they feel dirty, they cry. They are a black hole of needs and desires requiring an incredible amount of energy and resources from those around them. Whenever I visit new parents, I have yet to hear someone say, Pastor Jeff, this is a lot easier than I thought it would be. No, it's usually like a look of shock. OMG, I had no idea how hard being a parent is. The picture of complete dependency describes the posture of every Christian. We cling to Jesus. We cry out to Jesus because he alone can do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Like a baby, we too sense spiritual hunger. We recognize that there is an emptiness, a feeling of incompletion in our souls that we cannot describe and that no matter how many A's we get, no matter how many accolades and achievements, how many toys we buy, however big our house might be, this emptiness won't go away. And so we cry out to Jesus, complete me, feed me. Like a baby, we too can sense spiritual filthiness. We recognize that deep down inside, we're not what we're supposed to be. We see just how big our egos are. 
when our coworkers are recognized, when our friends are praised, we cannot help but feel jealousy and envy. What about me? We find ourselves offended by the sins of those around us, but rarely are we outraged by the sin we find in our own hearts. We consider how easy it is, it is for us to spend hours at a time reading useless articles on the internet, watching trivial videos, and yet struggle so much to spend time with God. And we feel shame and we feel guilt. We feel unclean. At my office, um, there is an office worker, and no, it's not Lewis, it's someone in the building, I don't know from where, that I run into at least once or twice a day whenever I'm at the office, maybe at the restroom, at the cafeteria, in the hallways. I see him about once or twice a day, and every time I see him, he's staring at his phone. Even when I go in the restroom, he's at the urinal, he is staring at his phone. It's kind of gross, right? And so I find myself judging him. There he is again with his phone. I think I judge him really harshly because he's a lot older than me. And I might expect a teenager to always be on their phone, but surely not someone older than me. And I kind of want to say, dude, you are addicted. So I'm just accusing him every single time. There he is again with his phone. Guess what? This past week, I opened the bathroom, and he comes out, and he wasn't on his phone. But I was on my phone. <laughs> and right then... I could see God laughing. Jeff, you are such a hypocrite. We all know how much you see the phone, how much you cling to it. As Christians, we know that we're not what we're supposed to be. We know there's a lot of messiness inside. And so we cry out to God like a baby. God, clean me. God, forgive me. God, redeem me. This childlike dependency is expressed in one of my favorite hymns. The third verse of Rock of Ages says this, Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. A child has no credits, no clout, no claim. It has nothing to offer but its needs. In the same way, that is how we come to God. God, feed me. God, clean me. God, redeem me. Number two, closely related to childlike dependency is a second characteristic, childlike receptivity. Not only do we look to Jesus to satisfy our needs, but we receive his gifts like a child. We receive his gifts freely and unapologetically. When a, when a parent brings a child home, 
There is no negotiations. There's no stipulations or contracts. A a parent doesn't say to their child, I will feed you, protect you, provide for you, love you, and soothe you only if you do this, 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 this for me. I just read a headline the other day uh, about a couple in India who are suing their adult son. They're suing him for not having grandchildren. And their argument is, we paid for your education, we deserve a grandchild. We laugh at that because it goes against the grain of what a parent-child relationship looks like, which is what? Unconditional. When a parent loves their child, feeds and cleans their child, protects and provides for their child, they do it with no strings attached. And when a child receives the parent's love, it does so without apology. It does so freely and delightfully. Parents, what would you say if your five-year-old child in the middle of dinner said, Mom, Dad, I'm so sorry, I'm such a burden to you. I heard about inflation, and I know this cup of milk is really expensive. (laughs) I know the cost of living in Irvine is outrageous, and my room is really expensive. Mom, Dad, one day I will prove to you that I'm worth it. Now parents are going (laughs) to... Amen. Now, uh, godly parents would be horrified, right? (laughs) Godly parents would be like, what are you saying? You are not a burden. It is our joy to feed you. It's our joy to delight in you. You are our child. It's a privilege being your parent. We want you to receive our love freely. Don't feel bad. And I think that's what Jesus is saying. Just as this child is receiving me, I want you to receive me. My love is not transactional. It's not an exchange of goods and services. It's not an employer-employee relationship. No, come to me, receive my love, receive my salvation with open arms. I delight to be your savior. I delight to be your God. Third, Jesus is looking for childlike identity. One thing I envy about little children is how simple their lives are, how simple they view themselves. They are not encumbered by the filters of this world. Children don't care about the clothes they wear. They don't care if their clothes come from Gap or from Gucci. Children don't care about how they look. They'll go outside with smudges on their face, with their hair sticking up. They are oblivious to their appearance. Children don't care about whether or not they live in a mansion or in a studio apartment. They're oblivious to their wealth and status. If you think about it, the only thing children care about are their parents. Is mommy and daddy with me? 
If a baby sees mom and dad, they feel secure. They could be in a parking lot, in a busy supermarket, out in the park, or at church. As long as they know mom and dad are near, they're calm. But the moment they lose eye contact with their parents, the moment they sense that they've been left unknown, they panic, they freak out, they get anxious, and they start to cry. The same is true for significance. So long as a baby knows that mom and dad delights in them, they can see mom and dad smiling they feel good about themselves. But the moment that smile turns into a frown, their world is lost and they just burst into tears. Mom and dad is unhappy with me. A parent is the world for little children. In the same way, I believe Jesus is saying to us, as my children, I want to be the world for you. I want to be all that matters to your identity. I want you to feel secure wherever you are because you know I am with you. I want you to feel significant and worthy no matter what is happening in life because I'm smiling upon you. God's Presence and God's pleasure takes increasing relevance to a growing Christian. God's presence and God's pleasure become the foundational building blocks that a growing believer lives out of. A mature Christian is someone who allows these irrevocable gospel truths to shape how they view themselves and how they view life. God is with me. God is for me. That's all that matters. You see, there's a big difference between living for approval and living from approval. So many of us, when we're disconnected from the gospel, when we're disconnected from God, we're living for approval. We look to the world to approve us and affirm us, whether at home doing chores, whether completing a project at work, whether it's buying a new car or wearing nice clothes, where, where approval, black holes, magnets, please approve me, please affirm me. So much of our lives is living for approval, but the gospel does the opposite. God delights in you, and so no longer do we need to live for approval. We live from approval. Believe me, as a preacher, there's a big difference from when I am preaching for your approval or for my approval, or when I am preaching from God's approval. It's so much more freeing and liberating. A childlike identity is being able to see ourselves like a child where Jesus is the world to us. 
as long as I can see Jesus, as long as I know he's smiling upon me, that's all that matters. As you can see, becoming childlike is not just the entrance way to the kingdom of God. It's not just the first steps of every Christian. No, childlikeness is the mode of the Christian life. It describes our relationship from beginning to end. You see, spiritual development and human development are antithetical to one another. With human development, you go from absolute dependence to greater and greater independence. Believe me, I have teenagers, right? You go from absolute dependence to greater and greater independence. Spiritual development is the opposite, where you go from absolute independence from God, I don't want anything to do with you, to greater and greater dependence upon him. With spiritual development, you grow down, not up. The mark of a mature, veteran Christian is someone who breathes the prayer of Psalm 73, whom have I in heaven but you? There is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Friends, how would you describe your dependence on God? Do you see a child or do you see an adult? How would you describe your receptivity of God? Are you freely embracing the good gifts and blessings God wants to give you? How would you describe your childlike identity? How much of your well-being, how much of your security and significance stems from God's presence and pleasure versus the circumstances of this world. I'll close with this. When I picture Jesus taking children into his arms to bless them, for some reason, I thought of a photograph I once saw in my cousin's home. The photograph is of my cousin, who's six feet four, uh, carrying my grandmother on his back. I think they're at the beach. My grandmother has this huge grin, smiling as she's up so high, and my cousin is smiling ear to ear. I can't help but think, at the end of time, when we're all gathered at the gates of heaven, we're going to see all kinds of people gathered there. Tall people, short people, old people, young people, bodybuilders and athletes, disabled people, paraplegics, wealthy CEOs in their fancy suits, homeless beggars dressed in their rags, missionaries and evangelists who have led hundreds of people to the kingdom of God, the criminal on death row who accepts Jesus late in life. And yet, when we all reach the front, 
Jesus is going to come to us and says, get on my back. Climb aboard. Let me carry you in. And at that invitation, there's going to be no balking. There's going to be no hesitation. Just tears of joy. Yes, Jesus. I will climb on your back. Thank you, Jesus. We will cling to him with all of our life. Thank you, Lord, for doing it all and for bringing me into your house. I think this is why Jesus got so angry at the disciples. Being childlike is the heartbeat of the Christian life. And so, dear church, may we grow in childlikeness as we depend upon him, as we receive him, as we identify with him. Let's pray. Lord, we confess that in this life there is so much pressure for us to be competent, to be strong, to be powerful, to have it under control, to look competent and be whole. Lord, that is just so tiring. So tiring. And we're grateful that because of what you have done for us through Jesus, we are free to be weak. We're free to cry out. We are free to cling. We are free to hold you. Lord, rescue us from our pride and self-righteousness. Rescue us from our self-reliance. Rescue us, Lord, from any impulse that strives to live this life apart from you. Rather, Lord, help us to live with you as our world, with your presence and pleasure guiding our steps. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.